A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. The successor to Elizabeth I, the first Stuart King of England, James, had been King of Scotland since his mother's forced abdication in 1567 when he was just a year old. He had, therefore, by the time he took the English throne, more years of experience of kingship than Henry VIII in his entire reign, albeit as a child for much of it. You'd think there was an obvious story here about the experience of growing up as a king. So much of the focus of work on Louis XIV, for example. But both that experience, and indeed much of James's time as an adult Scottish king, have been rather neglected by historians. The curious thing is that historical analyses of James VI and I, by contrast to the focus on the Tudor monarchs, have tended to concentrate on politics, religion and economics. Vital matters, to be sure, but there is an important personal story here of James's formation, Scottish rule and his time at the English court that explicates all the grand matters of state. And it is to that side of James's life and rule that we turn today with my guest, Dr. Stephen Verapin. Dr. Verapin teaches English literature at the University of Strathclyde. He's the author of historical novels, including the Simon Danforth trilogy of murder mysteries set in Scotland in the 1540s. And he's written historical non-fiction studies of the relationships between Mary, Queen of Scots and her brother Moray and Elizabeth I and the Earl of Essex. His latest book is The Wisest Fool, The Lavish Life of James VI and I. Dr. Verapen, welcome to Not Just the Tudors. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's a great joy to have you on to talk about this king, whom I feel has been somewhat neglected by comparison to the other monarchs on either side of him. And when I read your book, I realised that every previous account I've read of James has very much focused on high politics and religion. And there's lots of important things that happens in his reign in those matters. But I haven't ever before really seen his personal private life come into focus. What led you to this approach? Oh, well, that's an interesting point, Susanna, because I've discovered the same through researching multiple books and existing biographies and things. Yes, that is exactly the case. Texts have tended to focus on events in James's reign, the gunpowder plot, the witchcraft trials, that kind of thing. They've not really looked at him as, I suppose, a human being, as a man. And I discovered, yes, people have touched on it. People have historically looked at, for example, his relationships with his male favourites and certainly going back to the 1950s and these older texts, 
you can almost sense the kind of discomfort with some of these relationships. And I think that has probably played a part in it. I think there's been a kind of hesitance to really speculate about what was going on in his private life. Similarly, his relationship with his wife, I think there's been a tendency historically to write her off as frivolous or lightweight in comparison to this towering intellectual that James was. And I found that she wasn't like that at all. She was extremely politically prominent. She was extremely astute. She was intelligent. So it almost just felt like undiscovered country, really. There was a real opportunity. Yes, and actually you look at Anna of Denmark so much. This is almost a joint biography at times. But let's focus in on James and the image that we have of him because the way he's been portrayed, the image that has been repeated again and again comes from a primary source that describes him as cowardly, as quite vividly, having a tongue too large for his mouth so that he dribbled when he drank, bandy legs, propensity to both slovenliness and to fiddling with his codpiece. How much is this rooted in fact? Yes, I'm glad you mentioned the codpiece fiddling. Two things about that. One, it comes from that single source. The other is, yes, it has become so popular. So whenever James pops up in historical fiction, for example, you can guarantee that that codpiece will be fiddled with. I mean, I often think if, if I was forced to wear a codpiece, I probably would fiddle with it all the time. <laughs> it's such an odd thing to wear. But it comes from the Anthony Weldon text, The Court and Character of King James, and there is some dubiety about whether Weldon actually wrote it. First of all, we're not sure. He might have done, he might not have done. But rather than being an accurate representation of James, it was always intended as a kind of satire, as an exaggeration, as something that was really drawn out to extremes. And I think it's almost a shame that it has become the enduring image. You almost forget or can't imagine that there was once a young, vigorous monarch behind that image. Isn't that fascinating that our dominant picture of him is actually one that was written satirically and therefore shouldn't be taken at face value at all? Yes, I suppose if you think of Elizabeth I, for example, we are fairly comfortable, I think, with the idea that, yes, for a lot of the time she was a young, vibrant woman. If we let the image of her in her old age, for example, you know, the John Harrington sketch of Elizabeth where she's wandering about the halls of Hampton Court stabbing Arises with a rusty sword, if that somehow became the dominant image and that was all we associated with her, well, a similar thing has happened with James. This kind of elderly, extreme, exaggerated, satirical image has become the dominant image. Well, let's start with the young James then. Tell me about his upbringing, because for fairly dramatic reasons, he is without his parents. Indeed, he's cut off from his family and subject, you say, to an educational experiment. Yes, yes. James had an unusual childhood. Now, it's sometimes said that he was deprived of love, that he was kept away from his family. All of this is true. It wasn't unusual for monarchs in the period to be brought up separately from their families. That was fairly standard. They would be almost fostered off. What was unusual in James's case was that he was actively encouraged to detest his family, to distrust his family. The idea behind the people bringing James up, I suppose, was that they wanted to craft an ideal Presbyterian, almost a Calvinist monarch. They wanted a monarch who almost accepted that he was subject to the consent of the people. That, I think, was unusual. It was unusual particularly that he was, rather than taught to 
love and respect his parents. He was taught to really fear and detest Mary Queen of Scots, to think she was this kind of semi-demonic figure. And you mention his relationship with his tutor, George Buchanan. How influential do you think that was in James's development? I think it was incredibly influential. I mean, Buchanan was, for the period, a really a towering intellect. He was a very intelligent man. He was also a kind of classical Republican in that he believed that monarchs should be at the consent of the people. He wanted to drum these lessons into James. The problem was he was elderly at the time he was teaching James. He was reputedly violent as well. He would beat these lessons into James. James was terrified of him. There's a wonderful story. Uh, There's a couple of stories, actually. One of them is James later in Denmark coming across a portrait of Buchanan and having to slap on a smile and pretend that he was happy to see it. There's another in which he met a courtier and was apparently struck by his resemblance to Buchanan and affected terror at seeing him. You reminded me of that awful, awful man that used to teach me. He also attempted to ban Buchanan's writings when he was king. We don't know how successful that ban was, but he attempted to ban his writings. Sounds like he was fairly traumatised by the man. Yeah, I think so. I think he really was. You draw a parallel, which I think has rarely been made, between the teenage James and the teenage Elizabeth, that both were groomed by older, ambitious, manipulative men. So tell us about Esme Stewart. How did he groom James and what were the effects? This was a parallel. I was astounded that James hasn't really been given the same kind of sympathy that Elizabeth has been given. I think it's deserved sympathy. I mean, we're quite comfortable now, I think, with the idea that Thomas Seymour did groom Elizabeth, that he did sort of encourage her attention. She was extremely young. James was roughly the same age when Esme Stewart came into his life, his cousin on Darnley's side. And what he really wanted, I think, was affection. James was really sort of starved of affection. He had a very lofty sense of his own uh, divinity, even at that young age, his own sense of monarchy. But he wanted affection. And Esme seemed to recognise this. He also seemed to recognise, I think, James's bisexuality and encourage it. Esme was a man of the world. He had been a French courtier. He was the same age as Mary Queen of Scots, so he was much older than James. And He encouraged him. We don't know how far the relationship went. I mean, there's no way of knowing that. But we do know that it was castigated widely, particularly by the Kirk. That's the Scottish Church who made all kinds of very arch comments about James kissing this man in public and lavishing affection on him. It was also unpopular with a lot of Scottish politicians or noblemen. I don't think they were so much bothered by what James might have been doing in the bedroom. They were more bothered by the fact that, well, this French nobleman is monopolising the king, is having access to his bedchambers, having all these political perks. So James, I think, saw this as a love story. I mean, he really did love Esme. Esme, I don't believe, loved James. I mean, it would be nice, I suppose, to think there was some affection there, but it was abuse ultimately, I think. This was a much older man taking advantage of a young teenager for what he could get, and he got a lot. He got perks, he got titles, he got property, he got jewels. And one thing that really comes out in your book is a sense that in response to the relationship with Esme Stewart, but also perhaps in response to George Buchanan, later in life, James is looking 
to be in that position of power with regard to other peoples. So we see him recreating, I suppose, the attempt to mould other people in his image, just as other people had tried to shape him. Yes, it's so interesting, isn't it? And it's hard almost, it's really difficult not to perform some sort of psychological analysis because, yes, James seemed to view his relationship with Esme as his first love, rightly or wrongly. And rather than look for another Esme Stewart in the future, he did almost seem to want to adopt that role. Now, he never became an abuser. He never went for any young people, male or female, who were callow to consent or anything like that. But he very much seemed to prize the idea that he was the patriarch. He was the older, aloof, intelligent master. He loved that idea. And Throughout his quest for love, if that's not too cheesy to say, he was always looking for that person who he could mould, who he could teach, who he could impart his wisdom to. Esme Stewart is his first male lover. We're not going to pry into exactly what took place between the two, not least because we can't know. But his beloved, his lover, in the more capacious sense of the word at least, and it's his last. What fresh perspective did you want to bring to James's love affairs in your work? I think what I really was looking to do was to show that there were no such thing as labels in this period. So I think this almost Victorian kind of discomfort that scholars have had in the past of kind of categorising his love affairs, of working at exactly what went on and when and with whom, it doesn't fit the period. In the period, James did not identify as bisexual. That did not exist. James identified as the king, first and foremost. I think that was his absolute identity. It's a nice identity to have, I suppose. I identify as the king. And that was quite enough for him. Everything he did beyond that in terms of love affairs, in terms of sexuality. These were available things to the king. These were possibilities. I don't think he had any sense that he was doing anything immoral or anything like that. I don't think he thought he was capable of doing anything immoral. I mean, that's, I suppose, one thing I should say. James had a a massive sense of being in the right at all times. It's almost shades of Henry VIII in that sense that whatever he did was sanctioned by God, it was right. So, He could be quite a hypocrite, I think. I mean, we know he wrote against, for example, sodomy, but he also wrote against swearing, whilst swearing like a trooper. So we can't take what he would write in guidance and sort of monarchical agenda books and things as how he lived his life. This is skipping ahead slightly, but would it be fair to say that one of the effects of Stuart's grooming was ultimately the sacrifice of James's mother? Oh, that's a very good point. Because Esme Stewart, when he came from France to Scotland, part of his mission was to restore Mary. He was acting supposedly ostensibly in Mary's interests and he very quickly gave that up. And I think the reason he gave that up is because he realised, oh, I can monopolise this child. I can actually take control here if I do what I'm supposed to do and restore his mother that will not benefit me in any way. That's someone else my age stepping in here who has much more of a claim over the child than I do. So I think he very quickly gave that up. Did that lead to Mary's downfall? I would say no, I think. I think what led more directly to Mary's downfall was actually Stuart's fall. Obviously, Esme Stuart was driven out of Scotland. It was a sort of factional fighting against him. James was kidnapped and forced to banish Esme, much to his regret. But that cleared the way then for 
more factional infighting, which then led to a treaty with England and a treaty with Elizabeth. And I think as soon as that treaty was signed with Elizabeth, Mary very quickly fell. And I don't think that was coincidence. I think the English government were almost trying to kind of buy James to get him in their pocket. Once they thought they had secured that, it was very easy to allow plots to mature, you know, all of the Walsingham background stuff. And Mary was very quickly dispatched. That was the catalyst, really, I think, for Mary's final act. Now, whatever he might have felt privately, James knew that he needed a wife. And one of the brave things he does is set off across the seas to bring home his intended bride. I want to ask you why you think he does that, but also what we should know about Anna of Denmark and the nature of their relationship. Again, it gives the lie to the idea that James was a terrible coward, who was terrified of his own shadow and all of that sort of stuff. He wasn't. He led military campaigns in Scotland. As you say, he sailed out in storms to collect his wife. And it's a fantastic story. I think it's up there. In fact, it's beyond Henry VIII meeting Anne of Cleves, really, that kind of meeting of arranged marriages. But it also followed Mary's execution fairly quickly. And I think the reasoning there was once Mary was executed, from a purely cynical perspective, James was now sole king. There was a report, we don't know how true this was, but someone reported that he expressed relief when he found out his mother was killed. He said, now I am sole king. I don't know how true that is, as I say, but whether the wording is true or not, the fact remains he was. There was no one else claiming his crown now. That made him more attractive on the international marriage market. He was now sole king of Scots. And it was very quickly after Mary's death that serious marriage negotiations took place. He originally chose Anna's sister, Elizabeth, but there was so much prevarication over the marriage that she was pledged elsewhere, so he ended up with Anna. And yes, it's interesting, he cleared out his bedchamber from what the records show of male lovers at this time. He was really serious about making a go of this. And then he went out to claim her, professed himself in love. Now, the story usually goes that he met Anna and all went well at first. And then he realised she wasn't an intellectual. She was uh, very lightweight. This is the common narrative. And so... James, being an intellectual, lost interest. And I think there's a real problem there. And the problem is that James was an autocrat. He was an early modern autocrat. And like all early modern male autocrats, he had no desire for an intellectual wife who would hold her own in debate. He didn't want that. There were disagreements early in their marriage. And it wasn't because Anna was stupid. It wasn't because she lacked any sort of interest in his interests. It was because she was too intelligent for her own good, really. She was too politically forceful. She had her own opinions. I think James had concocted this fantasy of, I'll marry this young woman, 15 and then 16 when she goes back to Scotland, and she will be the sort of ideal submissive wife. And Anna was not for being an ideal submissive wife. Right from the start, she was determined to manage her own household. She was determined to choose her own servants. And she wasn't shy about announcing this. She would disagree with James when James put Sir James Melville in her household to manage it. She was furious. She argued with him. So she was just too forceful, I think. 
what you've alluded to there in his autocracy is that he had a kind of overblown sense of his own importance. And you've mentioned that he's a hypocrite. Let's talk about his character. At one point, you say he had a nasty humour that was at the expense of others. Was he also a misogynist? What should we make of him? A lot of the misogyny, I think we can almost trace directly back to Buchanan. Buchanan was a terrible misogynist and he was a bachelor, Buchanan. He'd been a lifelong bachelor, but he seemed to have a kind of prurient interest in married couple sex lives, which is interesting. James seemed to inherit that almost. He inherited the misogyny. And a lot of that, I think, was the period. The period did really encourage the idea. And I think especially Reformation Scotland. Reformation Scotland really pushed the narrative that women were subject to men, that they were inferior, all of this sort of thing. So I think James imbibed this. To his credit, what I think is his most misogynist writing, the poem in which he castigates women as gossips and all of this, is at least a kind of challenge to be proven wrong. But in terms of his character, it's a difficult one to sum up because, yes, he was autocratic. He, as you said, had this massive sense of ego. People at the time commented on this. They said he loves himself and despises other princes. Now, I suppose to some extent you can wonder, well, how much of that was performative? How much was that him trying to portray what he thought the role of king should look like in the teeth of a Scottish polity, which was trying to reduce that and trying to play up the role of the Kirk? But no, I think he definitely, until the end of his life, had a very inflated sense of ego, a sense of his own importance. But beneath that, beneath the misogyny, beneath even the nasty humour, there was at times this almost oppositional kind of avuncular sense. I suppose that comes with the paternalism. He really liked to think of himself as a good guy, as a kind of good-humoured, nice person, as well as an intellectual. What I think was... You know the old image of Henry VIII, the bluff King Hal image, in which he's very jocular and jovial and all of that sort of stuff? That really can be traced to the early 17th century. Some of the plays, um, the Rowley play, When You See Me, You Know Me. I think that was James. I think those early dramatists were writing the king they knew when they were writing Henry VIII, and the king they knew was James. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improved jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.
you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. On this kind of idea of misogyny, there is something else we ought to talk about. What do you think sparked James's obsession with witchcraft? I watched your program on witches and I loved it. And I found it quite harrowing seeing some of the stuff filmed. It's a difficult one with James because it was horrible in terms of what it was doing to predominantly women. But what we see with that is it came from Denmark. Those storms that had initially prevented Anna from sailing over and then troubled James's journey, they were blamed in Denmark on witches. And James seems to have picked this up and thought, well, if witches were active in Denmark, they must have been active in Scotland as well. And that really sparked off the mass trials, those horrific things that you talked about in the show. And where it, I suppose, becomes interesting is what was James's role in it. And it was a big one. And there's no denying it's a big one. He was in the driving seat of these witch trials for all he considered himself an intellectual. In fact, I should probably point out, and you'll know this, that was an intellectual position as well. I suppose we like to think of history as being usually progressive and, you know, moving forward and becoming more enlightened, but it can also take retrograde steps. And I think that was a really clear example of that. So at the cutting edge of intellectual thought was that the devil existed, he could take on corporeal form and he could seduce, again, and James wrote this, uh, predominantly women. Women were weaker, of course, so they were more susceptible to the devil's charms. So I think that's when we really start to see, yes, the misogyny, yes, it was part of the intellectual culture that witches existed, and we see James driving it. I think to get those mass witch trials, you really do need three things. You need people willing to almost serve up victims. You need, a, I guess, a legal system willing to prosecute, and you need someone at the top driving it, and James was driving it. Now... He publishes his book, Demonology, in 1597, and six years later he becomes not only King of Scotland but King of England as well. And there's such hope amongst the English when he succeeds in 1603. He's this stable family man, he's learned, he's a Protestant, he's got proven experience. When did their disillusionment begin? When was the party over? That's a very good question, yes, because there was a huge amount of hope, exactly as you say, and James had cultivated that image of the family man, the stable dynastic figure who would succeed the Baron Elizabeth, all of this sort of stuff. He and Anna, I think, had worked on that. But they made their own bed to an extent. I think two big flaws became obvious early in the English reign. One of them was that they weren't going to make any religious changes. Now, James presented this as a good thing. He really wanted to be seen as the continuity candidate. In fact, he said that he was lucky amongst his English monarch forebears and that he came to the throne without having to make any changes, whereas quite a few of the Tudors had come and immediately started changing things. That wasn't what a lot of people wanted to hear because James and Anna had almost made promises to the Catholics 
that they would be more tolerant. They had made promises to more puritanical figures or seemed attractive to puritanical figures and they weren't going to satisfy them either. So a lot of people, I think, were looking forward to, that sounds different, looking forward to Elizabeth dying, looking forward to a new reign in the hope that big change would come religiously. And it didn't. They also had a problem in that they were a family. That's expensive. Elizabeth had led a fairly frugal court. And when James and Anna came to the throne, it had become obvious in Scotland, actually, these were spendthrift people. I mean, these were people who loved to party. And they not only weren't going to stop, they were going to increase it. Again, from their perspective, I suppose, this was showbiz. This was showing off the new dynasty, showing off the new monarchy. But it quickly led them into all kinds of financial problems, which would never go away. So I think people became disillusioned there. And then I guess in a third way, under Elizabeth, particularly in the last decades, Parliament had been growing a bit bullshit, I suppose, had been growing in power, or at least in its own sense of power, its own sense of place in the constitution. And a lot of MPs had been looking forward to a new reign. They actually wrote up, I don't think they published it, but they wrote up a protestation in which they had actually said, we intended to have our rights and privileges codified. The only reason we didn't do it under Elizabeth was due to her age and sex. So they intended under James, this will be a fresh start. We'll be able to really present our case, have a, a key constitutional position. And James had no time for that. No change. You're exactly as inferior to me as you were to Elizabeth. They didn't like that either. So yes, I think within that first decade, within that first five years, it became clear the new boss is much the same as the old boss. So we've got a sense of expectations that were then confounded, that he's going to be the change candidate, that he's going to confirm our rights and privileges, and that he was not doing either of those things. And also, there's a sense of be careful what you wish for. You wanted a family man. You wanted a chap who's got a relationship, got sons. Now you've got it, and it turns out it's an expensive thing to have. Something else they probably wouldn't have expected is his close relationship with his male favourites. And we have to think about his love affairs at the court as well and how far they were a part of that disillusionment, I suppose. You draw a parallel again with Henry VIII here and Anne Boleyn when you think about Robert Carr. So what drew James to Carr? And I also want to think about Queen Anna here because although she wasn't quite cast aside like Catherine of Aragon, she nevertheless had to respond in a way. How did she do that? Well, on one memorable occasion, she threatened to go back to Denmark. <laughs> I'll go back to Denmark if you keep this up. She had no intention of doing so. It was a very political move that she made, but it didn't work. So yes, what drew James to Carr? We have an answer to that, really. I mean, there's a shallow answer, which was Carr was reputedly very attractive, smooth-faced and straight-shouldered and straight-limbed and all of this. But funnily, James had known Carr before that as a courtier. What seemed to draw him at the moment was that Carr was injured in a riding accident at the Accession Day tilts. And that seemed to stir James's paternalism and for whatever reason, he decided here is this person who is really apt to be taught and to, again, have my wisdom imparted to him and all of that. And there's this scene of him visiting the injured car at Charing Cross and trying to teach him Latin. <laughs> How romantic, the language of love. He somehow decided, yes, Carr is 
the one, Cutters, the person I'd been looking for, the person who will just be an open vessel for all my learning. He was wrong, but Carr wasn't particularly bright. So this sense of a creature in need, a sense of dependency, yes, is yes, what yeah, yeah. made him attractive, not the straight limbs, perhaps. I think so, yes. I'm sure they didn't hurt, but... <laughs> it's not something I've ever looked for particularly. In 1612, calamity occurred, one that might have brought the married couple together, I suppose. What impact did the death of Prince Henry, their eldest child, have on James and Anna? I think it was a really devastating blow because Prince Henry was... Not just their child, not just the heir, but he was an extremely popular one. He has gone down in history, I suppose, as a king that never was, and one of these great historical what-ifs, what would he have been like? But he was certainly being groomed to be everything that the English particularly thought James wasn't. One of the other be careful what you wish for things is Elizabeth's Anglo-Spanish War. Now, it had been expensive, it had been long. James brought it to an end which could have brought great prosperity if James hadn't been such a spendthrift, I suppose. But this weird thing, and it occurs a lot in history, funnily enough, of people want a war to end, but once it's ended within a few years, they start to look back and think, well, wasn't it great when we were fighting in the ocean and on the seas and all of this sort of stuff? And they almost wanted, again, to be a great militant Protestant power. And James was averse to war. I think he'd probably seen enough conflict in his youth that he'd had quite enough. And he could see how ruinous and how expensive it was, particularly on the continent. So he was averse to it. Whereas Henry really had an affinity with military matters, with naval matters. So he was being seen as this coming man. It's everything Elizabeth had worried about, about having an heir or naming an heir, is suddenly people will start to look towards the future. So when Henry died, it was sudden and it was shocking and it was really a devastating blow. And what is quite sad about it, even more sad, is that, yes, it could have brought James and Anna together, but they mourned separately. She mourned in, I believe, Hampton Court. James secreted himself in his hunting lodges with Robert Carr. After Robert Carr, his last favourite, at least that's a traditional word for it. I'm wondering if we should abandon that actually as a word. It was George Villiers. He was one who was championed by the Queen though, wasn't he? I think that's such an interesting story because yes, Anna had absolutely hated Robert Carr, became the Earl of Somerset, but I'll stick with calling him Carr for now. So Anna had really disliked him and the reason she really disliked him is Carr made a mistake. As I said earlier, Carr wasn't particularly sensitive or intelligent. His mistake was that he never showed Anna any respect. In fact, there are reports that he was laughing at her, that he was treating her with disrespect, which she would never stand. So he was almost kind of flaunting this affair in the Queen's face and flaunting his influence in her face. So she disliked him. She was therefore initially reluctant to sponsor a new favourite or new lover, but she was talked down by the Archbishop of Canterbury, actually, which is such an odd confluence of circumstances. The Archbishop of Canterbury helps a new male lover into your husband's bed. But that's how it fell out. And Carr, I think, again, made his own bed in this case. Carr rode high for a considerable, about six or seven years, but he married. And James was quite happy for this throughout his life. James understood the game. I mean, James understood that I might be in love with these young men, but reality exists and the reality demands that they marry and produce heirs and all of this sort of stuff. So he was quite happy for that. 
What he wasn't so happy with was when those lovers committed the sin of actually being in love with their wives. James wanted them to marry, yes, but to continue dancing attendance on him, the king. Carr married the very scandalous Francis Howard, who was already married. She was married to the Earl of Essex. James secured their divorce. He got Carr married off. And then he suddenly found that Carr was spending quite a lot of time with his wife, was showing himself in love with his wife, and was failing to show James due affection. There's a famous letter in which James complains to him about your long creeping back and withdrawing from my chamber. And that meant it was almost really ripe for someone else to step in. And that's when Villiers, who had a faction behind him, which, as I say, included the Archbishop of Canterbury, who hated Carr as well, which included Anna, they were able to primp up Villiers, who again was said to be extremely attractive. Again, another really lavish bit of praise. There was not a flaw in him from his, was it from the crown of his head to the tip of his toes or something like that. He was reportedly a fine specimen. And James eventually went for the bait. And there was a kind of brief window there when you had the discarded lover car and you had the new man Villiers all at court together, silently loathing one another. But then Carr was completely out. And that was, of course, the famous Overbury murder case when it turned out that Carr's wife had poisoned Carr's friend and secretary, Thomas Overbury, because he had objected to all of that scandalous divorce and marriage and all of that. I think Overbury was the intelligent one. Overbury saw that if Carr married Francis, he would be in love with her, he would stop spending time with the king and his star would fall and he tried to warn against it. James didn't like Overbury. He clapped him in the tower and there he died in mysterious circumstances. It fell out later that it had been Francis who'd been pretty much signing up every poisoner in London to smuggle poisoned tarts, poisoned enemas, things into the tower to silence this man, to keep him out of their affair. So Carr and his wife both went on trial. They were both found guilty. And that allowed James to, as he always would, he was very merciful if he had ever loved someone, very merciful and commuted the sentence of death, but banished them. And this left the way free for Villiers to take up the mantle as the sole king's favourite, the sole king's lover. And he didn't make the mistake that Carr had made. In fact, he played it very cleverly. He courted Anna. He really fostered a friendship with Anna. So we have the king, his wife and his lover, not quite all in one bed, but at least very friendly with one another. And that worked. And James was delighted with this. One of the things that I know I talk about in the book quite a lot is his real love of family and his desire for a sense of close family. And Villiers almost slotted in and became a kind of substitute member of the family or an honorary member of the family. Yes, there's a sense of trying to recreate that which he had not had as a child. And anybody who wants to know more about the Overbury murder can listen to our recent podcast, which was on poison and murder in the Stuart Court, where we get to go into that in some detail. Your book, which is huge and fascinating and fantastic, covers much more material than we can manage in this podcast. But I did want to ask you one more question before we close. The title of your book is The Wisest Fall, and it comes from what Henry IV, Henri IV of France, supposedly dubbed James, the wisest fool in Christendom, wise in small things, but a fool in weighty affairs. Was this a fair estimation of the king in the end, do you think? 
couple of things. There's no proof Henry said that. Who claimed it was Henry? Where does it come from? Anthony Weldon. Again, it comes from the Anthony Weldon text. So again, we have this dubious manuscript, which just had a catalogue of anti-James things. It did have some positive things to say about him, I should say. But yes, it's one of those myths. But I think it actually is accurate, but the wrong way round. And it claims, as you said, Susanna, that James was a fool in weighty matters and wise in small matters. I think he was the opposite. I think he was actually fairly wise in the big things. I mean, if you look at some of his religious goals, for example, he wanted religious unity. His idea was that over the 16th century, Christendom had torn itself apart, and it had. And he wanted to bring the various Protestant sects together as a prelude to finding some sort of accord with Roman Catholicism. So that's wise, it was ambitious. If you look at his approach to war, a big thing, he was against it. He wanted to find peaceful solutions. Again, big matter and I think a wise view of things. It was in the small matters, I think, that he could be a fool. So things like, I mean, I suppose it's maybe not even that small, but things like reigning and spending, he would count pennies but throw away pounds. He almost had a disdain for the small things. He had a disdain for the daily grind of government. He would leave it all to overworked secretaries. He drove poor old Cecil or Salisbury as he'd elevated him to into an early grave with overwork. So I think, yes, in big matters, he was definitely extremely wise, I think. In these small ones, he could be extremely foolish. Well, thank you so much for this taste of the story that you uncover so well in your book, which is a great read and is on sale now. Thank you, Stephen Virapin, so much for joining us on Not Just the Tudors. Thanks, Susanna. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. And also to my researcher, Alice Smith, and my producer, Rob Weinberg. We are always eager to hear from you, so do drop us a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on X, formerly known as Twitter, at notjusttudors. And please remember to follow Not Just the Tudors wherever you get your podcasts, so you get each new episode as soon as it's released. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.